Pastor Matt here, and uh, the sermon for April the 11th came from Paul Fuller. This is the third sermon from Joshua. Uh, he preached this. Uh, for me, it was yesterday. I'll be listening to it as soon as I get it uploaded. I hope it's a blessing to you. And if you have any questions, always feel free to contact Edgewood Church. Just Google us. You can find us. Father, we come before you again this morning, recognizing you as the king of the universe. The ruler, the one to whom we are to obey, to submit. You are truly God over heavens and the earth. Help us as we dive into Joshua 2 this morning, that you would humble us and see how you use people who are not even in your chosen nation, Israel, Gentiles like us, but not even just normal Gentiles, the outcasts of society, you use them for your glory, to bring them into your covenant, to give them joy, to make them part of the family. Help us to see that. Help us to be people who will go and tell others. I ask that you would help this morning, help me, to speak clearly that your spirit would be empowering me and that your spirit would work in the minds and hearts of those who are hearing this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just as a little bit of uh, orientation, remember last time we preached, the people of Israel are on this, this is the Jordan River running right down the center. They're on this side waiting to go into the promised land. And the story takes place right across the river in Jericho. I know it's really tiny, but just imagine basically they're not in the promised land waiting here, and they've gone into here. So this morning, I want to introduce you to um, a person named Tekla. It's a real person. Tekla, as a 12-year-old, was deceived by a friend taken advantage of by someone older than her. And within a very short time, she entered a life of prostitution in New Jersey. And she lived a hard life for many years. And after she became pregnant with the man who had enslaved her, her pimp, she realized that she no longer could just care about her own self she had someone else that she was going to have to take care of. Somehow through that, through interactions with God's people, who God brought into her life, God drew her to himself. She trusted in Christ, and through a really dangerous and scary journey, Tekla was brought out by God into a life, out of the life of destruction, into a life of joy and ministry. A prostitute. How do you guys feel about the fact that the main character in this story is a prostitute like Tekla? And she is the one who shows the most faith. Isn't that interesting? I wonder, are you shocked? Are you offended that it was a prostitute that God used? Or are you grateful? 
God's in the business of saving lives, right? He's in the business of redeeming lives, changing them for his glory and his kingdom. And from the beginning of time, in the beginning of in Genesis and all the way to the end, he's been doing that, changing people's lives with people who know that they need him, right? People that know who they need him. He came to save the sick, right? Not the well. He came to see, save the meek, not the proud. And though every single one of us deserves God's judgment, every single one of us, he's a God who saves. Amen. Right? Amen. And we're going to see that truth so vividly in that story that we read this morning. When God saves a person like Tekla, her name in this story is Rahab, we'll see that God's The point of this passage is that God advances his kingdom through the salvation of Gentile sinners like you and me. God advances his kingdom by saving Gentile sinners like you and like me. Now the story, if you were tracking with me, it's an amazing story of like intrigue and adventure. It almost sounds a little bit like a spy movie, doesn't it? Right? There's a secret mission. There's a blown cover. There's a capture attempt. There's an escape plan and even a successful return. But in all of that, God doesn't want us to miss the point. I mean, it's a cool story. I've heard it since I was a kid. But I think it's easy for us to miss the point of that. There's really good reasons why this story comes after chapter 1. And before chapter 3, when Israel's going to cross the river. And if you think about it, it's like, why did God put this little story right here in the middle? And I think you're going to see why, by the end, why God put this here. There's three things I want us to see in this whole story. Two kingdoms, two responses, and one hope. Two kingdoms, two responses, and one hope. So in verses 1 through 7, we're going to see two kingdoms. We remember... First chapter, there's this rallying cry to the troops to be strong and courageous, to go forward and take the land. God promises to be with them. We saw really great promises there, right? And now here in chapter two, Israel's been camped on that east side of the Jordan for about a year, waiting to go in and take that land. And so what Joshua does here is he takes two guys that we know nothing about and sends them out on a recon mission, a spy out and figure out what's going on to check things out. And the first thing they do is they go right to where they knew that they would be able to gather intel about the city and the surrounding land. They go to the house of a prostitute. And it was very common in these ancient Near Eastern towns that on the edge of the town, there would be these inns that also were brothels. Um, And those people in those inns knew about all the strangers coming to the town, right? And staying the night at the inn. They knew what they were up to. And in fact, those people working in the inn were expected to report into the king. And, and, And you'll see the word king in the Old Testament a lot. You can almost think of that almost as a mayor, Because there was a king of each town. Sometimes there'd be a king above those kings, but there was a king of this town. And they expected that the prostitutes that worked there, that inn, would report to the king about the dealings of who's coming in and out. Now, apparently, 
These spies were no James Bonds because somehow their cover was blown pretty quick. Um, how, we don't really know. Why is it that all of a sudden they were found out? But the king of the town in the story comes to the house and because someone's ratted them out already. And they knew, the people in the inn and the city knew that these men were Israelites who had come to check things out. And in verse 4 it says, But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. Rahab somehow knew that their cover was blown, and she takes her first step of faith. And this is a huge deal. Don't miss this. Some of these, step, these steps that Rahab takes are very scary for her. They have to be very scary. Um, she's acting, though, on something that she's already believed is worth risking her life for. Okay? So the king's messengers, they come pounding on the door. Hey, bring them out. We know they're in there. Right? And how Rahab responds to them shows a second step of faith that she takes. Kind of a controversial step for us. She lies to protect God's people. Right? She, that actually is a step of faith. She says, yeah, two guys came through here, but I don't know where they were from. But just before dark, they left and they went that way towards the Jordan. If you get moving quick, you'll be able to catch up with them. Now, she tells them that they went towards Jordan. Now, that would make sense because everybody in this town, I keep thinking the map's still up there, but everybody on the east side of the Jordan knows that Israel's on the west side and they're scared to death. So she tells these guys, the king's messengers, hey, they went that way, go look there. Um, God says that when, Ab- when Rahab hid them and then even lied, that she demonstrated faith in that moment. How do I know? Because Hebrews 11.31, this is in the New Testament, talks about her. It says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So she exercised faith at that moment. What we need to see in those first seven verses is that there are two kingdoms that come knocking at her door. One kingdom was the kingdom of Jericho. And it was an incredibly wicked kingdom. God, for like over a thousand years, you got to understand, before this point in the story, for a thousand years, God had put up with Jericho and the rest of Canaan. He'd put up with them. Meaning, they were doing awful, awful wicked things. This was Sin City. Archaeologists have uncovered this area, this area here, and they know that the, um, the kind of Sin City it was makes Amsterdam and Las Vegas look quaint. It was a bad place. It was a bad place. And God said that this is the kind of place that needs to experience what's called harem in Hebrew. Complete and utter destruction. That's kind of shocking to us. And that kingdom, though, is the kingdom that Rahab was a citizen of. In fact, her very way of life contributed to that wickedness that deserved God's judgment. I mean, she had grown up there. Her family would live there. Her livelihood depended on that wickedness continuing. Her roots went really deep. 
So that first kingdom is the kingdom of Jericho that represents all of Satan's ambitions. It represents evil. It was a real place, but that kingdom of Jericho represents the system of the world. The second kingdom is that of King Yahweh, King Jehovah. And everything that his kingdom represents was diametrically opposed to the kingdom of Jericho. He's a holy God. He hates sin. In fact, he uses the word abhor, which is the strongest hate word you can find. He's a just God and he will punish the wicked. He doesn't glance at or just wink at debauchery and immorality. Think about it. If God just kind of, oh, I, don't, I didn't see that in our lives, would that be the kind of God you want to worship? No, you don't want God to pretend that he doesn't see our evil wickedness and our thoughts. God has to be a holy and just God. Now think about Rahab. If she helped King Yahweh, her life, her family, her livelihood could all be taken away by the king of Jericho. Because she'd be a traitor. If she ratted them out, I mean, if she didn't rat them out, if she told the king of Jericho that she let, if, she, if the king of Jericho finds out that she let those guys go, um, if she helped King Yahweh, Israel, her livelihood is on the line. She would die. King of Jericho would come destroy her. She didn't know which way was going to work. If, if she helped Israel, King of Jericho is going to destroy her. If she helps Israel, she doesn't know for sure. She doesn't know which way things are going to go. But she took a step of faith and believed that this King Yahweh was at least worthy to die for. My friend, you and I live in a world where every day two kingdoms come knocking at your door. We do, there, there's the kingdom that offers the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It makes promises that you're going to find happiness and escape from stress and suffering. It makes promises that you're going to find joy and pleasure. But it's all lies. Right? It's lies. And the ruler of that kingdom knows that his time's short, so he's taking down as many as he can right now. But you're also faced every day with the kingdom of Christ. Right? You see all around you grace and mercy displayed to you in your life. You and I have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet your heart continues to beat. That's grace and mercy. We don't deserve it. Amen. Right? He gives you good gifts to enjoy. So many good gifts to enjoy. He makes our hearts beats. He blesses us in spite of ourselves. Yeah. Right? But here's the real question. Which king will you serve? That's what verses 1 through 7 are asking you. Which king are you serving right now? Verses 8 through 16 show us two responses, two responses to what God has done. So after the king's goons are sent off on a wild goose chase, the author in our story gripped your attention by telling us at the end of verse 7 that the gate has been shut. Now, these are cities that are completely walled off. 
There's only like one way in and out, right? And it tells us the gate has been shut. And that's bad news for the spies because it means they're trapped in the city. What's going to happen to them? And it's in verse 8 that Rahab comes up to the roof where she had hidden them under big stalks of flax. And the author would lay those out there to dry out, to be used for later. And here, it's where we see Rahab explain the situation in the land to them, and she makes a huge confession. First, in verse 9, she confesses that she already knows that Yahweh has given them the land. It actually says, he has given Israel the land, as if it's already a done deal, and they haven't even come in yet. She sees the writing on the wall, and she knows that God is going to do whatever he plans to do, regardless of how big the king of Jericho thinks he is. She knows that. The way it says in verse 9, he's given you the land. She already knows it. She sees the writing on the wall. But then she shows the first possible response. So there's two responses here. She shows us the first possible response to Yahweh. Look at verse 9. It says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. The people in Jericho are terrified of that swarm of people on the other side of the Jordan. They're absolutely terrified. The first response to God's mighty acts is debilitating despair. That's the way the people in Jericho are right now. They are in such despair that it's debilitating. They can't figure out what to do. Utter fear in their heart, and rightly so. Rightly so, because they know that the judgment of King Yahweh that they had heard about is coming. How do I know? Because in verse 10, it says, For we have heard how Yahweh, that's what that capital L-O-R-D, or Jehovah, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. They heard what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were on the, uh, beyond the Jordan, the king of Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. That's that harem word. So word of God's mighty acts, these had spread. Now we don't know if it was by word of mouth from Israel or just from town to town to town, they started hearing about what this God Yahweh has done. And, you know, people were talking about it. That's for sure. In any time, even today, the works of God, when they are preached, there's at least two responses. You either have debilitating despair, or you could have justifying faith. And that's what we see that... Rahab displays. Now, these in Canaan, in fact, all that ancient Near East area, there were localized gods. What I mean by that, there was a god of the river, a god of the sea, a god of the rain, god for the trees, and each area had one. It'd be like a Vermilion County god of rain and a Pyatt County uh, god of rain. Okay? So they believed that there was a god over all these aspects of nature. Very personalized to their area. You have to understand that so that when you read verse 11, her confession is mind-blowing because everybody there believes that there's a God, these different gods. And she says, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. 
For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Understand what she just did there. She just said all those local gods are nothing. God, Yahweh, Jehovah is in heaven above and rules on the earth, everything. She just, if you go heaven and earth in old language, that covers the entire universe. She just made a confession right there that God, Yahweh, is the God, the only God, the one who rules. So Rahab, by that statement right there, has already believed in her heart and confessed with her mouth. She believed in her heart and confessed with her mouth that God is sovereign above all. Does this sound familiar to you? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Right? Rahab didn't know who Jesus was, but Rahab recognized who was Lord, who was God, and put her trust in the God of Israel who made a promise to bring the Messiah, to bring Jesus. She had experienced a real, true conversion. How do I know that? I know that because what she said with her mouth, that she believed in her heart, produced actions that justified the faith that she already possessed. Think that through. What she said with her mouth shows that what she believed in her heart, and we see that, It produced works, actions that justify, prove that she has that faith in her heart. Right? And I'm not reading more into this than what's here. You know why I know that? Because in James chapter 2, it talks about Rahab again. It says, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay, that's not saying we're saved by our works. It's saying the way James talks about the word justifying, it's justifying like proving what's in here. Rahab proved what she believed and said with her mouth because she put the rubber. I'm going to mess up a metaphor. I can feel it. (laughs) She put her. She did what she said she believed. (laughs) It's like when Bush tried to say fool me once. Uh, don't do it again. <laughs> right? Here's the point. What she said with her mouth that she believed in her heart produced actions that justified the faith that she possessed. But you have to ask, I mean, like, what works do we see that justified her faith? Well, besides hiding the initial, initial hiding of the spies, we're going to see more in a minute here, where... What other actions did she do that showed there was real faith in her heart? So what we've seen so far is that Rahab chose to be a citizen of another kingdom, a greater kingdom. And then we see that given the testimony of God's mighty acts, which spell out impending doom for Jericho, she chose to respond not in debilitating fear and continued unbelief, but she chose to respond in worship, right? She chose to bow the knee to King Yahweh, 
Then she justified her faith with her good works. And you've heard from this pulpit over and over the mighty acts of God, Sunday to Sunday, and preeminently the mightiest act of all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this preaching, Sunday after Sunday, the mighty acts of God, leaves you with two responses. You can choose to live life your way, and that's going to result in debilitating fear and eternal punishment. Or you can choose to respond the way Yahweh did, to confess that God is, is God over all. Today, you would confess that Jesus is Lord. So I'm going to ask you again, which king will you serve? Which king will you worship? So finally, in verses 17 to 24, we see that there's one hope. One hope. And at this point in the story, the spies are up on the roof, right? They're hiding under the flax, chatting with Rahab, and she's confessed that Yahweh is king, and she's pleaded with them to make a covenant with her. You kind of see that language of swearing back and forth, not like bad language, but like swearing an oath with each other, with the spies. It's, it's a covenant that's being set up. In the Hebrew language, it's very covenant language going on there. And they agree to stake their lives on this covenant. That's what they mean by swearing. And it's no light matter because when Rahab talks about the covenant, she brings in God. She says, swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh. And so the men make this covenant with her between Rahab and Israel. And it was witnessed by God himself. But they're still stuck in the house. They're still on the roof. And it happens that her house is built into the wall. This is in Israel. And this is the edge of a town that archaeologists have uncovered. And you can kind of see by the perspective of these people here how big the corner is. So it was not uncommon for these inns to be right on the edge of the town and the walls be that thick. That's like 15 to 20 feet that way, depending on which way you're, uh, which kind of archaeology you're uncovering. It could be 15 to 20 feet. So when it says she's on the edge of town, her house is built there and then they'd have rooms on top of that. So as you picture her these, letting these guys out off the top of the roof, they're coming down on the outside of that. That's quite possibly the kind of wall that Rahab's house was built into. And so Rahab has this idea. She's going to let them down outside the top window. And as they get to the bottom, you can kind of envision this. Her looking down as they're already down there. She says, okay, head that way towards the hills. So towards the hills would actually be, if I had my map, it'd be further into Israel. Be further into Canaan. Because she's sending them away from where she just sent the goons. Okay? So in a sense, she's saying, hey, head down, head that way towards the hills west, away from the Jordan, because that's where the king's men are going to be. Men are going to be. Wait there for three days, and then you're going to be good to go. And then, that's when the spies make her put her faith into obedience, and they make a sign for that covenant. So first of all, they make a covenant to protect her, but then there's a sign for the covenant. And making a sign for a covenant was very common in those days, okay? Um, 
they tell her, hang a scarlet line out the window where it can be seen. And that's going to mark out the house where she lived. And they said, if any of your family wants to survive, they better be in that house when we come or else they're going to die. Now, the day that Israel is going to cross over the Jordan, that's in the next two chapters of Joshua, is the same month of Passover, the month of Nisan, the first month of the years. We learned a couple of weeks ago, right? That's a big deal because as Israel, anyone Jewish would have been reading this chapter two and they get into chapter three and they see that she's called to put a sign on the outside of her house. Their mind would be going to mark the Passover. Exactly. Marking out their own house so that judgment would pass over. Rahab's being asked to make a sign of the covenant to mark out her house so that judgment would pass over. So this little scarlet cord was the one sign of hope for Rahab. It was a scarlet cord, a scarlet hope. And Rahab no, had really no reason to hope in one sense. Because she was a Canaanite. All right? People doomed for destruction. And Canaanites were Gentiles, people outside of the covenant community. God told Israel, you're going to destroy them. And Rahab's part of that. But she's also a traitor to her people now. Right? She just, she just pulled a traitorous treason, you know? She, was, she just, um, she's, she could be killed by the king of Jericho if they find out what she did. So she's a Canaanite, she's a traitor, and she's a prostitute. A person perpetuating the problem of wickedness in this city. Rahab fully expected death. She kind of knew, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But she demonstrated her faith by her words and her actions and took that final step that you see at the end of verse 21, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. She hung on to that scarlet thread in a sense in hope because she believed that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was a God of mercy. She knew she deserved death. And yet she clung to hope that that God, Yahweh, was a God of mercy who would save them. And in one sense, we have no reason to hope. Right? We are all probably in this room Gentiles. We're not part of God's special nation. We're all rebellious sinners. Every single one of us. And if you're not, if you say you're not, then you're a liar too. (laughs) Right? That's where we're at. We are all filthy, rotten idiots too, as we say here, right? Right? (laughs) But the fact is there's grace and mercy. There's grace and mercy for politicians. There's grace and mercy for prostitutes. There's grace and mercy for preachers. There's grace and mercy for every single one who would call on the name of Jesus Christ. And that scarlet cord in the window is a reminder that a woman like Rahab, saved from the industry that abuses women and makes them the object of lust, is a reminder that God is bringing the blessing of Abraham to all nations through his son, Jesus. He's doing that, though, by the spreading of the good news through his people he's saved. 
He, yes, he gave us his word, but he expects his people to go tell about the mighty acts that he has done preeminently in Jesus. And just like when one of his people told, one of God's people told Sarah about God's mighty acts and his son. Let me tell you about Sarah. Sarah was saved in the darkness. She was working as a stripper in Louisville. She was masking the pain and shame with drugs and alcohol every day. And then Karen, not a Karen, a real Karen, a good Karen. <laughs> I feel bad for all Karens. My sister's Karen. But Sarah, alcohol and drugs daily in order to do this job that she's doing. Karen came into her life quite literally into the strip club. She would go into strip clubs with other Christian women. And Karen ministered to Sarah. She fed her. They brought in food, meals for them. She told her about Jesus. There's a lot to Sarah's story. And her story's filled with God's amazing goodness. There's reconciliation with her family she was estranged from. There's faithful church attendance in Sarah's life and an absolute hunger for Jesus. But it's also a story of hardship, even after coming to Christ. Um, she battled addiction and mental illness and trauma from being abused as a child. In fact, Sarah served a year in prison after she became a believer for crimes she had committed prior to becoming a believer. And Karen received a letter from Sarah while she was in prison. And she says to Karen, of course, I don't like it here, but God is alive even in this place, in the prison. I get to go to church twice a week. I read my Bible all the time, especially the Psalms. And I've been telling the other girls about Jesus too. Every night after lights out, I lead the girls in a prayer. And then we all say the Lord's Prayer together. I'm very lonely here, but I also know I'm never alone. And that's a good promise. That's a story of Sarah, a stripper, who came to Christ. And it's for women like Sarah that I know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus enables Karen to go into those clubs. And just like Jesus didn't wait for sinners like the adulterous woman in the New Testament who was about to be stoned to come to him, Jesus didn't wait for them to come to him. Jesus loved Sarah and Rahab too much to wait for her to go into a church building. Jesus is the lover and pursuer of rebels. And he wants us to be that as well. Sarah's life may not be free of pain and hardship, but one thing is absolutely dramatically different in her life. She no longer, her identity is no longer addict, convict, and stripper. Her identity is now and will forever, forever be daughter of the almighty, holy creator, king. That's her identity. And just like Rahab's identity was no longer Canaanite prostitute traitor, when Sarah is knee-deep in sin now and suffering, she knows the only place to go is the foot of the cross, that equal footing for all of us. And Sarah's life may never look like what we think of as the ideal Christian. 
But one thing's for sure. One day there will be no more addiction. There will be no more slave industry. There will be no more poverty, no more abuse. But there will be Sarah and Tekla and Rahab and Karen standing side by side in front of their creator singing to him. Amen. 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 Singing praises to our great God. And I started off saying there's a reason why this chapter is sandwiched in between one and three. And I think God included it here for two reasons at least. First of all, I think he put chapter two in here to shock his people. And I mean his people, Israel. What's shocking is that it's a Gentile Canaanite prostitute who should have been destroyed by God's wrath and they, she is brought into God's covenant family. That would have been shocking for an Israelite to read. Even today, they'd be like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. But here's what's awesome is God wants people reading this to see that this is fulfillment of a promise he made to Abraham that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. And we know that that is the fulfillment of Jesus Christ coming, who abolishes all these divides between people and gender and demographics. That's what mercy and grace is all the way through. Now, here's the thing. He's also a holy God of judgment. So I think the second reason why God put this story in between chapter 1 and chapter 3 is because as you would read through, and I challenge you to do this this week, go and read on to chapter 7 of Joshua. Because there you're going to find a man who is in the covenant community, an Israelite named Achan, who had been spared from God's wrath, blessed richly in the covenant, experienced the protection of Yahweh for many years, had seen his family be brought across the Jordan River safely by God, had known Jehovah Jireh's provision for his every need, And there you'll see he encounters those two kingdoms and chooses to serve the wrong one. Faced with two options, he chose the dishonoring one to put his hope and money, an idol that wouldn't bring him happiness. And when you contrast the life of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who like the publican in Luke beat his chest and said, God have mercy on me, that's Rahab. You contrast her with the life of Achan, who defied God's orders and whose family's destroyed, as you'll see in chapter 7, you see shocking disdain from him for God's mercy. God had shown him mercy. And if you are in Christ, it's possible for you to show shocking disdain for the mercy he has given you. To live a life of sin after you've trusted in Christ is saying, thanks God, I'm going to do what I want to do. One person in this story is brought, who's outside of the covenant, is brought in and loved. And in a little bit longer in the story, another person inside the covenant, abusing and disdaining the love of God. And there is a call for all of us on our life. There's two kingdoms. Are you going to serve the one who promises temporary pleasure but only delivers depression, discouragement, and despair? Are you going to serve the king who is the sovereign one over heaven and earth who promises us pleasure at his right hand forevermore in Psalm 16? And there's two responses you have. 
Are you going to live in debilitating fear for all of your life? Or are you going to come to Christ and confess that he is Lord? And there's only one hope. There's a scarlet line running through all of Scripture that points to Jesus Christ, your only hope, our Passover lamb. And no matter where you are in this life, whether you're like Tekla the prostitute or Sarah the stripper, wherever you are, whatever rebellion you're in, there's hope for you and it's found in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen. He bled and died for you to take what you deserve so that you don't have to bear that infinite punishment. Today he calls you to come to him. Don't wait. Don't wait. You don't know when he will come and bring with him judgment that awaits this earth. Yes, he is a God of grace and mercy, but he will bring judgment. For those who, have not, who are not trusting Christ, clinging to him, a judgment awaits for every single one of them. Which king will you serve? Which king will you worship? And which king will you hope in? Amen. Let's pray. God, we plead with you this morning for those we know who have not trusted in you. Would you give us the grace, the power to go speak to them, to not wait for them to come into the doors of this church, but to speak to them the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. For those of us who have Christ, who are one with Christ, Would you give us your spirit's conviction to turn from sin and not be like Achan who disdained your love? God, we all need your grace and mercy to continue. We praise you for your great grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.